they are mysterious and fascinating and we still don't know much about them so there's still so many things we don't know about the deep sea fish this is parsing science the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science as told by the researchers themselves i'm ryan watkins and i'm doug lay Today, in episode 55 of Parsing Science, we're joined by Zuzana Muzalova from Charles University in Prague. We'll discuss her research into the unique way that fish in the deep ocean's darkness may be able to see color, even though it's previously been believed that they're unable to do so. Here is Zuzana Muzalova. My name is Zuzana Muzalova, and I'm originally from the Czech Republic, where I was born and educated, and then I joined university, and after my bachelor, master's, and PhD degrees, I moved to Switzerland to do postdoc research training, where I got in touch with many great researchers and methods, and that's how my research line has been developed, actually. So now I'm back in Prague, where I'm having my own research group. So I have several projects which allow me to do fieldwork in tropical countries, And I really enjoy working in the tropical forests and tropical freshwater lakes. And I've done projects not only on vision or other sensory systems, but also on general evolution or speciation of um, endemic species, which evolved only in the particular lakes and so on. So my work is always focused on fish. And I really enjoy working in tropical countries such as in Cameroon. We can all probably recall that the eye works because of cones, which are responsible for color vision during daytime, and rods, which enable us to see in black and white during low light conditions. But we weren't as likely to have learned about the biological process by which cones and rods work, which is via a group of proteins called opsins. There's five classical groups of opsins, each attuned to a certain color of light. One of these, the opsin related to rods, called rhodopsin, is responsible for absorbing blue-green light and is the one that provides humans with the ability to see in low-light conditions. It's also the one that Zuzana and her team investigated. So we began our conversation by asking her to remind us how vision works, as well as to explain the role of rhodopsins in this process. So in our retina and in the retina of most vertebrates, you have two types of photoreceptor cells, and these are cone and rod cells. And cones are used mostly during a daylight, so that's for us, for humans, we have the blue, red, and a green a sensitive cone, and that gives us an opportunity to see colors. While at night, we use mostly rods, and for rods, we have only one uh, opsin gene, meaning that that's only one photoreceptor type. So that's why we are at night colorblind, and we see basically just the intensity. So we are seen in the grayscale. And this is the case for like vast majority of vertebrates. So almost all animals have only one rhodopsin type. And in our study, we identified several fish which have two or more rhodopsins. So it's been known before that some of the fish might have two rhodopsins. But we found also a case of a deep sea fish which suddenly has 38 different rhodopsins. So that's um, absolutely unusual and that's absolutely unique among vertebrates and among fish. So, and among basically among animals as well. And these 38 rod opsins, not only that they are that many, but they are also different. So they are sensitive to different colors, so to different shades of blue and green, basically. So they are spanning the light spectrum you get in the depth. So every 5 to 10 nanometers of the light spectrum, you get one rod opsin sensitive. So if that serves for color vision, then it's probably very different mechanism 
than color vision in all other vertebrates because all other vertebrates known to be able to see colors, they always use cones to do so. While Susanna and her team discovered that several deep sea fish appear to have the ability to see in color, one, the silver spiny fin, excelled in this regard. Doug and I were eager to hear her describe what the fish looks like, where it lives, and what its development from larvae to adult is. They actually look at the first glance quite boring, I would say. So it's like a little gray silvery fish, which is very flat from the sides, but it has extremely large eyes. So that's something which already draws your attention. Uh, but it doesn't have any unique mouth shape or any bioluminescent organs. But then if you look in the I, there you find a lot of extreme adaptations also at the level of anatomy or physiology of retina. Spiny fins, they live in the depth usually between 600 and 1200 meters, which is the zone which still gets some penetrating light. Uh, so it's very low intensity light, but there is still some light. And that's why it's a good advantage to have increased the chance to capture photons of the light. So you get large eyes. So the bigger the eye is, the higher chance to capture some photon, of course. But then you also get the modifications of retina to increase the chance to capture any photon possible. And these fish, they don't grow that much. So they are usually about less than 10 centimeters. Some of the extremes are up to 30 centimeters. But most of them that we collected are up to 10. So it's a small fish. It's not a big predator feeds probably on some plankton present in the depth. And as most of the deep sea fish, they live in the depth when they are adults. As a larvae, they spend some time in very shallow water, so close to the surface, with the other larvae of deep sea fish and with other plankton. So this period of life has to be also somehow covered by the vision. So the vision as we see it, composed only of different rods and rhodopsins that's only present in the adults, basically. Susanna's findings makes the spiny fin the vertebrate with the greatest number of visual options identified so far. We followed up by asking Susanna to tell us more about what rhodopsins are and how scientists estimate their influence on vision through computer simulations and laboratory experiments. We know a lot about the protein structure of rhodopsin. So rhodopsin is a protein and every protein is composed of amino acids. So it's a chain of amino acids. And specifically for rhodopsin, we already know that some amino acids at certain positions are quite important or are um, having more, let's say, impact if you replace them than at the other positions. And these positions are known and the replacement has been also recorded in many other uh, animals, so not only in fish. And we already know that certain position causes shift of several nanometers of the light spectrum if you replace the amino acid by another one. So this has been already known, and we could use the advantage of this knowledge to basically calculate the sensitivity of the rhodopsin from the DNA sequence. Because from the DNA sequence, you then calculate in computer um, or translate it into amino acid chain. So you will basically get the structure of the protein just from knowing the DNA. And then you can uh, make some predictions how sensitive this protein will be to different colors uh, in the spectrum. 
While Susanna's discovery of the spiny fin's 38 different types of photoreceptors is a breakthrough in understanding their visual system, we've long known that the fish are unusual in that they have extremely long rods, and that these are layered. We were curious how this layering occurs, as well as what advantages it might provide to the fish. In spiny fins and uh, many other deep sea fishes, you actually find several layers of uh, rod cells. It's called multibank retina, and it's again to increase the chance to capture as many photons as possible. So rods are the cells which are sensitive in the low intensity of light. And if they are layered, the photon have to go through several layers. So the chance to be captured is simply higher. And another modification towards the same direction is to actually elongate the rod. So many fish species or deep sea fish species, including spiny fins, have also elongated the rod cells several times longer than other fish which are not living in such extreme conditions. Since we obviously have no way of asking spiny fins what their vision looks like, Ryan and I were interested in learning if they do have color vision, whether it's used, what their vision might be like, as well as for what reason they may have developed such an ability. Of course, we are imagining that they could see actually different shades of blue and green, so maybe they can see the deep sea very colorful some way we cannot even imagine. But it's really hard to, to say, so here we are more at the side of speculation. But this is one of the options that they really can see very colorful world around them. So I think it is used because the, the, the broad spectrum they get from the rods, it's still narrower than our own spectrum. It's just a blue and green range of the light spectrum, which actually corresponds pretty well to the light coming from the surface. That's the light which goes basically deeper. Because when you have a light going through the water column, you first get the red and the UV edges filtered out first. And in the depth, you get only blue and green uh, light present. And it, it overlaps quite nicely with this sensitivity. So we think and we speculate that they might use this uh, high sensitivity for um, two purposes. So one of the purpose would be to see different bioluminescent flashes around themselves. The deep sea is full of bioluminescent flashes produced by other organisms. So not only other fish, but also um, a lot of crustaceans and other invertebrates are producing specific colors as bioluminescence. And these bioluminescent flashes have always slightly different color. So saying it in different words, different species of crustaceans are producing different colors. And we speculate that this fish might really have um, advantage of being able to tell apart different species of shrimps because they might prefer one of them. So they might really pick it up. So this is what we think it might be useful for. But at the same time, also to optimize the vision in the light environment of the deep sea. Megan Porter, who studies how vision evolved at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, was quoted in the New York Times as saying that Susanna's study goes against what we understood as how visual systems evolved in the deep sea, which means we have to question how visual systems work and function in the dim light. We asked Susanna to elaborate on what she thinks that Porter might have meant by this. The way we know color vision in other vertebrates is always through the neural wiring which is linked to the cone cells. So we don't know at all if the rods are able to do the same. But uh, we see on the genomes 
that the fish have these proteins and that they are using them. So we know that they have differently sensitive rot cell types, but we don't know at all how this is all connected and how the information is translated from the retina to the brain and um, how is everything processed. The fact is that the deep sea fish, they live in the environment with really low intensity of light and therefore the cone cells shouldn't work sufficiently to, to allow for any kind of color vision. So it has been speculated that the deep sea fish are probably colorblind using only the single rod cell type to see light. And um, what Megan Porter means is probably that suddenly there is a fish which has multiple rhodopsins, but we cannot say that the fish can see colors for sure, because if you want to say that some animal is able to see colors or to distinguish colors, you always have to make a behavioral experiment to prove that. And it's basically impossible to uh, do any behavioral experiment with these fish because they all have been collected from the deep sea, but you get them already um, dying or freshly uh, dead after capture because you take them from the great depth. So they are dead when they get on board of the research vessel. We even struggled to get a freshly collected uh, individual. So that was in last three years when we really tried to ask uh, other researchers who are um, taking part on deep sea cruises to bring us fresh material. Even that was a bit struggle because spiny fins, they are not very common. So they are quite rare and you occasionally get them in a net um, every now and then, but it's not a catch you could really plan. So you cannot say, Today, I want to catch 10 of these fish and you go specifically for them. Given the difficulty of obtaining living specimens of spiny fins, we followed up by asking Susanna what she thinks would be required to move forward with further experimentation and whether or not doing experiments might help us develop a more definitive answer as to whether they're able to discern color. We'll hear what she had to say after this short break. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may also like Parsing Science's new project, Science Pods, the curated collection of episodes from other podcasts that are handpicked for people interested in science. You can explore new science shows that will inform your research, guide your career, or maybe make you laugh at the absurdities of scientific life. You can subscribe at sciencepods.com. That's science, P-O-D-S, dot com. Now, back to Parsing Science. Here again is Susanna Muzalova. So we certainly need to get a fresh tissue to first look at the uh, a bit more in the detail in the retina. So we would first need to know um, if these different rhodopsin genes are expressed in different cells in some kind of exclusive way, so that there will be one type expressing only one and another type which would be expressing another one. Or if some of them are so-called co-expressed, so being present in one cell together. Because that would mean that the signal which the cell is then sending would be some average or some mixed signal. While if you have like mutually exclusive expression and in different uh, rod cell types, it would mean that you have really different rods sending different signal. So different signal under different uh, color. So this has to be understood. And then what certainly has to be understood is how is this translated uh, to get into the brain? This is critical. So that would be necessary to understand the mechanism. But to be able to say uh, that some fish is able to distinguish or see some colors, you need to do behavioral experiment, which is currently basically impossible because you 
first you would have to be really lucky to get them alive and you would have to transport them in some kind of pressure chamber to slowly acclimatize them to normal pressure or to keep them under immense pressure both of which is super demanding but even if you got it alive to the surface you would only be able to keep it for a couple of days or weeks alive since such experimentation isn't currently possible, Susanna and her team developed five scenarios which could explain the proliferation of rhodopsin among these fish. As it's more common for researchers to report on what they found, without venturing to guess as to why or how those phenomena may exist, we asked Susanna what led her and her team to develop these scenarios, as well as which among them she feels may have the greatest credence. It actually took us a while to realize we should do this because we had different opinions in our team. Some people said, no, we should not say anything we are not sure about, but then you have to uh, interpret it somehow. So that's why we thought like mentioning possible scenarios is actually not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing because that should promote the research for future. So yeah, so I would say that we don't understand exactly how do the different 38 rhodopsins work and if they could be used for some kind of color vision or if they are just to just to basically increase the sensitivity in total. So that's why we also did the modeling to basically show that if you wanted to increase just the sensitivity, you would be fine if you had two or three different rhodopsins, like two would be at the edges and one would be in the middle. You would be already very fine because the spiny fin, they have such long rod cells that it's enough to capture basically all photons coming through. You certainly don't need to have 38 different rhodopsins to just increase sensitivity. So there must be some other reason. Susanna and her team's article mentions that silver spiny fins express more rhodopsin as adults than they do as larvae. This led us to wonder if an increase in gene expression is common among other animals as well. We already know that different developmental stages are actually using a different set of genes. So this is the case. So during evolution, you might get an optimal set for larvae and optimal set for adults. So actually, then you see all genes in the genome but they are uh, used only in some developmental stages. But certainly what is the case is that even though the fish has 38 different rhodopsins in the genome, it doesn't mean they have 38 rod cell types. And you never get the situation where all of them would be expressed. So you don't get higher or lower expression levels, but you get different genes expressed during the ontogeny. So it's very common that the larvae or juveniles express different genes than the adults. For some of the genes, it's very well described. For some, we don't know well. But for opsins, we certainly can say that um, in larvae, we can see the expression of the rhodopsins in the, in the extreme parts of the spectral range or of the light spectrum. And there is no expression in the middle of the spectral range. But we know that this is because uh, of the fact that the larvae still have also cone opsin. So there's one cone opsin. And there are still cones in the larval retina. And the cone is right in the center of the light spectrum. So it is actually not necessary to have other rods there. So that's why they don't use it. They use just the edges of the sensitivity. And when they uh, grow up, they kind of can't use cones anymore because they go deeper and they live only deep water zone. Uh, 
So then they don't uh, use the cones anymore because they are not sensitive enough. And then they start to express the rhodopsins also from the center of the light spectrum. Susanna and her team computationally reconstructed the evolution of the silver spiny fin's vision and found that they first evolved an additional rhodopsin approximately 40 million years ago. The fish continued this genetic diversification about every 1 to 2 million years thereafter, resulting in the 38 rhodopsins they now possess. Next, Susanna explains why these gene duplications may have occurred, as well as how she and her team were able to determine this. Something you have to have in mind is that you look on something which you see nowadays, it means that it has evolved from something which has been there before. And um, it must have been useful for the ancestors as well to be maintained. And, um, and we could see that first you had an initial copy of the single rhodopsin gene. And these two copies have actually differentiated from each other pretty quickly to be sensitive to different colors. Because that's, that's a rule that if you have the gene duplication and the protein is not differentiated quickly enough, meaning in evolutionary time, it's like redundant. You don't need to keep both copies because they do the same. So ideally, one of the gene uh, gets a bit modified function. And this is what happened with the original, with the first duplication of the rhodopsin gene. So from certain point, it looks like that it is really advantageous to have more and more copies. So that was also an accelerated rate of getting more and more different rhodopsin present. And you can also see that in different time points, the ancestors had less uh, rhodopsins. Nowadays, they have 38. And we could also model what was the sensitivity of each of the protein. So we can actually see that the ancestor, which was 5 million years ago, had only this number of opsins and so on. And the ancestor of the two species uh, of spiny fins we had in an, our analysis had only 20 rhodopsins and so on. So this is what we tried to reconstruct. So that has been done by our collaborators in Australia and uh, Switzerland. And then we also use different models, which are actually, they are for the performance of the visual system, where you take into account several aspects like the light environment in the deep sea um, and the task the fish as a receiver has to do. So you are modeling how would the visual system work if you had to distinguish different colors. And then you test like what is the smallest difference the visual system can distinguish and so on. So basically the tasks, we try to simulate and model what the fish can actually distinguish. And this has been done by our collaborator in the US, Professor Karen Carlton. So she has done the modeling behind the visual models and behind the tasks. At least in humans, rods are responsible not only for night vision, but also our most sensitive motion detection and our peripheral vision. Given the large number of rods possessed by silver spiny fin, Ryan and I asked Susanna if the fish might also have enhanced ability with these visual features as well. Yes, it would be possible. The fact that you see colors means that you are not seen only in a grayscale, so it's like an add-on. So it's like if you take the color photo and you just modify it into the grayscale, you lose all the color information, but you still see the shapes and everything. So I think you cannot say that some fish would see in a grayscale at the same time in full colors, but it can also be that they have really good uh, grayscale to detect um, the world around them and also being able to see some of the stronger flashes around. Yeah, it would be possible. But the fact is that we don't know 
exactly how are the rods used. So it's possible that they just have really, really, really good grayscale and it somehow is operated by these differently sensitive rhodopsins, but we don't know. Just three months after its publication, Susanna and her team's study has been covered by over a hundred news outlets. We asked her what she thinks is responsible for this study's popularity, both in the media as well as the general public. The Science Journal does a good job because they do their own press release and they contact journalists, so a lot of international focus has been basically done by the Science Editorial Board or Editorial Service. But I guess it's certainly also the um, deep sea creatures, because I guess uh, whenever you have something about deep sea fishes, people get attracted because they are so bizarre and amazing that you just want to know more about them. So I guess that helped. They are mysterious and fascinating, and we still don't know much about them. So there's still so many things we don't know about the deep sea fish that it's just, I would say it's just like, something exciting to look in the deep sea or which might be comparable to go to the moon for some people. So it's just an unknown world which is on our earth and we still don't know much about it. Yeah, this really opens like opens doors to more research actually. So we are now having more questions than we had in the beginning, to be honest. That was Zuzana Muzalova discussing her article, Vision Using Multiple Distinct Rod Opsins in Deep Sea Fishes which she published with Fabio Cortesi and 16 other researchers in the journal Science on May 10, 2019. You'll find a link to their paper at parsingscience.org e55, along with bonus audio and other materials that we discussed during the episode. If you've enjoyed the first 55 episodes of Parsing Science, consider becoming a patron for as little as a dollar a month. As a sign of our thanks, you'll get access to hours of unreleased audio from all of our episodes so far, as well as the same for all our future ones. You'll help us continue to bring you the unpublished stories of researchers from around the world, while supporting what we hope is one of your favorite science shows. If you're interested in learning more, head over to parsingscience.org support for more information. Next time in episode 56 of Parsing Science, we'll be joined by Naya Butler-Craig from the Georgia Institute of Technology, who'll talk with us about her research involving miniature satellites known as CubeSats. CubeSats are basically nanosatellites, and if you think of a huge one-ton satellite, try to condense it to the size of a loaf of bread. We hope that you'll join us again. 